All right. Well, good morning, friends, uh, both those who are joining us here uh, in person and those who are joining us online. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at uh, Jericho Ridge, and it's a privilege to have you with us uh, today as we dive into a topic that no one wants to talk about, and that is the topic of temptation. Now, uh, we're talking about temptation because we're in the middle of the season of Lent, and the season of Lent is traditionally and historically the 40 days, not including Sundays, uh, that lead up to Easter, and during the season of Lent, historically, Christians have spent time doing self-reflection and thinking about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And often this comes through practice of self-denial in some way, giving something up for Lent uh, and self-examination. And because one of the traditional themes of Lent or the opportunities that Lent provides to us is the opportunity to just settle our lives and our hearts a little bit and to think about what are the things that actually have a grip on us that we may need to be freed from in some particular way. And so we've uh, delved down into a mini-series then for four weeks uh, in the topic of temptation, and we're calling it Hooked, and exploring how we help ourselves understand what are the things that have a grip on our lives, and how do we resist and untangle ourselves from some of those things so we can stand firm against temptation. So, two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Wally began by helping us understand the difference between just being tempted and trials that we might be walking through as individuals or as a community or globally. And then last week, we had Rob Ray with us, and Rob talked to us out of his area of study and expertise and led us through a great discussion about how technology can hook us and can be a way in which many things come into our lives. And really, there's kind of a big three when it comes to talking often about temptation. And so some of the big three temptations that we talk about, at least in a North American context, are sex, money, and power. And so when we talk about being tempted in the area of sexuality, one indicator that we talked about last week is understanding how that comes to us often these days through technology. And so how we steward technology can be an indicator of whether or not and how we're being tempted in these areas. And then money, we're going to talk about that today. And then power, uh, Kevin O'Coin is going to preach next weekend and lead us through a discussion and, and look into the scriptures about when Jesus was tempted to misuse and missteward his power and his relationships. But today we're going to talk about the topic that makes most people uncomfortable in and around church, the topic of money. And most pastors, A, they, they don't talk about it, or B, they only talk about it when the church is in budget trouble. So then the board says you should probably preach a sermon about budget or about you know, money or stewardship in some way. That's not the case here. But I want to be clear that uh, when we talk about money, we're actually not talking about money. We're actually talking about attitudes, actions, our heart orientation towards money. 
And, and this is an area for me that I know that I am prone to be tempted in and to fall into temptation in. And so we want to talk today about are there ways that we can strategize to release ourselves by God's grace and abilities from the grip that greed can sometimes have in our lives so that we can become people who are known as those who are generous and who are kind and who are open and ready and willing and available to be used by God uh, in whatever way God desires to do that. And the way that we think about this at Jericho is that one of our core values is actually generosity or generous living. And uh, in fact, the very first sermon that was ever preached at Jericho Ridge 17 years ago this month was on this topic of generosity and how to live a generous life. And so it's something that we really feel passionate uh, about. And the reason that uh, we teach often about this and we feel passionate about this is that the Bible has a lot to say about our attitudes and our hearts when it comes to the topic of finances and money. But again, when we talk about money, we're not actually talking about money. We're talking about our understanding of what's happening in our hearts when money becomes something to us more than just a tool. When materialism or greed get their hooks into us, in small and big ways so that we're trapped. And we can't then begin to experience a life of freedom uh, that Jesus is inviting us into. And, And to be clear, this happens regardless of our income level and regardless of also our spiritual maturity level. This is something that many, many people struggle with. And so today we're gonna explore two principles, two questions, and then two actions to help us uncover and explore and be free from the grip that this can have on our lives. So uh, let's look at our first example of this. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 is a great example of Jesus' teaching on this theme. You can turn in your Bibles or in the Jericho Ridge app. Uh, There's a Bible in there for you as well. And if you look at Jesus' main teaching themes in his ministry, fully one-third of the times when Jesus taught included some explanation or touchpoint on economics. Fully a third of Jesus' parables included some aspect of stewardship, of resources. And so in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is actually confronted by a person who's in the middle of a family dispute on finances. And this person comes and wants Jesus to tell this person's brother to divide the estate with them. So Luke chapter 12, verse 13, uh, Jesus first begins this uh, conversation when the person comes to him and says, Jesus, let's, let's have a conversation here. And Jesus first says this, Luke 12, 15, beware, guard against every kind of greed. For life is not measured by how much you own. And then Jesus told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And the rich man said to himself, what should I do? And I have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. And then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and my other goods. And then I'll sit back 
And I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But in this story, God said to him, you are a fool. You will die this very night, and then who will get everything that you have worked for? And then Jesus' book ends this with another refrain that is similar to what he said in Luke 12, 15. Luke 12, 21. Yes, a person is a fool or is foolish to store up earthly wealth, but to not have a rich relationship with God. See, Jesus is linking things here quite powerfully and profoundly that often we like to keep separate. And this is why a conversation on money matters and possessions, because we are going to be held to account for how we steward the things that we have been entrusted with in this life. And, and the question that God is going to ask us as a stewardship lens isn't, well, how much did you make over the course of your earthly life? It's the question of what did you do with it? How did you steward it? What, did you, what resources did I entrust with you, little or big? And then how did you deploy them for kingdom work? And so this is a question not of net worth, but of heart focus. And then Jesus goes on to teach more in this particular chapter. And at the end, he makes a penetrating observation in Luke 12, 28. Wherever your heart is, wherever your treasure is, rather, there the desires of your heart will be also. And the opposite is also true. Where your heart is, your treasure will be also. Your treasure and your heart are connected. They're linked together in specific ways in this. And so here's the first principle that we see in Jesus' teaching on stewardship. We express it this way. Where your heart goes, your money flows. Where your heart goes, your money flows. Wherever your heart is directed toward, your resources are most likely to follow that in some meaningful way. Uh, that's a quote by Chip Ingram, and uh, it's, uh, he's the author of a book called The Genius of Generosity. And in this book, we've put copies out on the seat. We've got a copy for everybody that wants to take one home uh, today with you because we want to be a good resource to you in this and don't want to just tell you a bunch of stuff and then just turn you loose and say, well, I hope you do something about that. This is a great little resource, a tool to help actually put in plan a place for becoming generous with your resources. And uh, he talks about just a little experiment or a challenge to get involved with. And, and uh, he explores in this book this connectivity between our hearts and our wallets or, or our resources. And I want to say that this is something that I find deeply challenging because I know myself well enough to know that my heart wants to go places that my wallet cannot afford. I want all kinds of things. I want more adventure. I want more travel. I want better quality wines in my cellar. I want technology. I want more toys. I want all kinds of good things for my kids and for my family that if I added all of that up would be more than I would be able to sustain. 
And so it's important to tease out what the scripture is saying to us here. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And the Apostle Paul makes a good distinction for us here to help us understand this. He's writing to uh, his protege in the first century, uh, a young leader named Timothy. And Paul says this, People who want to be rich fall into temptation. They are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So the distinction here that we need to get clear on is that money, even having a good amount of it, is not bad, evil, and wrong. It's the question of the heart's orientation towards that. The love of money, not just money in and of itself. So Paul's trying to ask this question of, do I long for things? Do I long for resources and what it brings in a way that is actually going to trap me? And in suburbia, And in polite Canadian discourse, we like to sidestep the issue and say, oh, no, not me. I don't long to be rich like those other people that Paul is talking about in Timothy here. But we attempt to circumvent this temptation by telling ourselves that we don't really love money. But if I'm honest, I do. I love what money can do for me. I love what I can do with it. But in this text, we bump up against then the second principle that we need to pay attention to. Principle one, where your heart goes, your money flows. Principle number two, the real question is about the attitude of our hearts, not the size of our houses or our bank accounts. See, how we think about finances is more important in this conversation than just a dollar amount or figure. Making the distinction between money and the love of money, the attitude of our hearts. So you can have a small bank account and have a disordered heart and disordered desires and want things that will entrap you, or you can have a large bank account and be entrapped in this way and have a disordered heart. You can have a large bank account and a rightly ordered heart that's generous, and you can have a small bank account and a rightly ordered heart. So that isn't the issue. The issue is the attitude of our hearts, the disposition of our hearts. But you might say, okay, Brad, that's fine, interesting, and good, but the question then is, how in the world do I diagnose the state of my heart? Like, how do I know what my heart is, is going on in my heart? Uh, and this really is a challenge because If you look in the New Testament, there's a bunch of sins that are listed, oftentimes bumped up right against the sin of greed, that are really easy to see in our own lives and in other people's lives, because sometimes they're external in some way, and so you point it out and go, oh, that person shouldn't be doing that, that's just totally sinful, evil, and wrong, or oh, I should probably not do that, that's sinful, evil, and wrong. But when it comes to those interior places in our heart, how would we know? How do we diagnose and figure out, am I actually a greedy person? How would I know that? We can be lured into the trap of thinking that, oh, I'm, I've given something up for Lent. I'm, that's pretty awesome. 
Like, I doesn't have a grip on me in any way, but we may not be after the right thing for the right reasons. So let me just share a little bit about my thinking on this. So my Lenten practice for this year was to give up travel websites and travel planning for Lent. And let me explain why. Because I love to live in the future. I am all about the next big adventure coming down the pipe. And, and I'm always thinking, well, what adventure could we be having around the bend from now? And the problem is, in my history, is that sometimes I get so wrapped up in that and caught up in that that I will hit click and purchase before the financial reality has actually settled in in the wisdom uh, of our budget. And so I'll tell myself and other people, well, we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll just buy that now, and we'll figure out how we're going to pay for it later. And this is a symptom of a malformed attitude in my heart. I'm being trapped by a foolish and unhelpful desire. I'm craving sometimes an experience or novelty or being seen as a person who is adventurous and global and who stays at nice hotels and goes to places where there is sunshine during spring break because, well, I deserve this, don't I? And while not inherently bad or wrong, if my bank account cannot sustain these things, this becomes then an issue. And it's an issue of integrity because my outside desire to be perceived in a certain way or to have something or to possess an experience is not in line with the reality of the interior of contentedness and what actually I can afford. And this is what Paul's after in the second scripture passage we want to look at more deeply today, Ephesians chapter 5. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. And I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Here, Paul is speaking specifically to this issue of the heart and what is gripping our hearts. Ephesians 5, verse 3, Paul says, Let there be no sexual immorality, so this is an exterior sin, impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place amongst God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God because you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. So here's the, again, that question of the heart the question of our, our attitudes and our orientation towards things. And again, it butts right up against some of those sins that might be easier to diagnose in our lives or in the lives of other people. Obscene stories, inappropriate sexual content, those might be easier to spot. But the harder question, again, is how do I diagnose greed? Or in the language of Ephesians 3, verse 5, how do I know what it would mean if I was worshiping the things of this world. What does it mean to actually worship the things of this world? 
Well, an Old Testament professor of mine, uh, Elmer Martins, wrote a pamphlet years ago called Blowing the, Materi- the Whistle on Materialism. And I'll post a link to it in the JRCC Friends Facebook page. Um, but I like one of his phrases in there has always stuck with me about this. When respect to asking the diagnostic question around the state of our hearts, Elmer Martin says this, do I have or do you have what he calls shifty spiritual eyes? Shifty spiritual eyes. He says this, quote, shifty spiritual eyes are an early sign of trouble. God's kingdom remains within sight, but God's sufficiency, which we sang so beautifully about earlier, is subtly, even unconsciously questioned. The lure of things begins to blur the sharp outline of God's kingdom, and it's that time when a grasping, even coveting spirit can emerge. Shifting or shifty spiritual eyes when our eyes begin to lose sight of God's sufficiency, God's provision for us in our lives. Our eyes begin to shift away from the things and the values that Jesus invites us into, values like generosity, values like self-denial, values like not owing people things that cannot be repaid when our eyes began to shift towards other things, whatever those things are, travel websites, the next great deal, the next getaway, maybe for you your area of temptation is different than this. Maybe you find you're caught up in debt because you have an obsessive desire to buy the latest technology or always to be seen or perceived in a certain way. Maybe it's with regards to clothing or housing or whatever it is. Do you have shifty spiritual eyes that are, that are just being subtly or not so subtly directed away from God's provision and onto other realities? What does that look like? And, and maybe for you, you say, you know, Brad, this isn't an issue for me. And praise God if it is. But if Jesus spent one-third of his teaching in these categories, it's likely that it touches a significant number of us in our lives. And Ephesians 5.5 says that if I have allowed myself, if you have allowed yourself to become a greedy person, you're actually committing the sin of idolatry because you are worshiping the, the things of this world. And idolatry is, is something that's kind of the word and the discussion of it's fallen out of fashion these days uh, because we like to think about idolatry as sophisticated Western people as like some primitive people bowing down to a statue somewhere or a trinket. Or, and we just think, oh, well, that's just ridiculous. Of course, I would never do anything like that. But Jude, in uh, the book of the Bible, says and warns, dear children, Keep your hearts from idols. So again, this obsessive linkage in the New Testament between our hearts and this notion of where our resources and our minds and our lives are going. In other words, once something wraps itself around your heart, once those shifty spiritual eyes get focused on it and then you invite it in, 
that place inside of you that's the seat of your emotions, your intellect, your planning, once something has gripped you there, once something has hooked you there, you're in trouble. I love the way that um, 19th century British Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon described and defined idolatry. He said this, quote, if you love anything better than God or more than God, you are idolaters. If there's anything you would not give up for God, if God asked you, it is your idol. If there is anything that you seek with greater fervor than you seek the glory of God, then that is your idol. I think he's on to something there. And it's in the long tradition of the Old Testament prophets. In the Old Testament, oftentimes, one of the messages that the prophets brought to the people of Israel was around the state of their hearts and around the state of the economics that their hearts and that they had created. And so an example of this is uh, the book of Amos. And Amos says, uh, gets really a big head of steam built on this as he moves into chapter 6. And one of the things that Amos critiqued was that in chapter 6, he says, you have beds laid with ivory, you have all kinds of fancy furniture, you, have, you eat and you drink well, you have amazing entertainment budgets. And in Amos chapter 6, verse 6, he says this to the people of God, you drink wine by the bowlful and you use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin spiritually of your nation. See, Amos is not worried or concerned as much that the people have stuff. He's concerned that the stuff is beginning to push out some of the real issues in their lives. The problem, Amos said, is not that if you can afford it, that you travel or that you have a nice vehicle or a nice bottle of wine. But Amos says, never, ever, ever allow those things in your life to cause you to lose compassion or concern for people who are in trouble. If you lose your capacity to grieve over calamity because you're insulated it from it by wealth, then you're too wealthy. So here's diagnostic question number two. Is my capacity for compassion compromised or blunted in any way? Has my socioeconomic reality or my finances isolated me such from the pain of a hurting world that I actually don't feel it and don't notice it? or maybe even worse, don't want to feel it or notice it? How is your compassion capacity these days? When you look at the world, do you have the ability to feel compassion and think, I wonder if there's something that I could do in my resources to marshal towards meeting of needs, if God said so? And if If you can't or don't feel or experience that in some way, then maybe it's an indicator that your heart is out of sorts, that it's out of kilter. And then we need to explore what the solution is. So we'll turn the corner and look at two proposed action steps 
What would it look like for us to live into places where we could begin to get unhooked in this? So we're going to talk about two practices. Practice number one is a practice of gratitude. In Ephesians, when Paul starts talking about all of these things, if you notice embedded right there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul says, uh, instead of greed, let there be thankfulness to God. And then later on, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, he says this, and give thanks in everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is seeing this sense of gratitude as the antidote to greed that can grip our hearts. Paul doesn't just sort of give this lecture and say, you ought to be less materialistic. He says, no, no, actually, why don't you try subbing something out in your life? Why don't you try just shifting your eyes? If you're, if you're experiencing shifty spiritual eyes, shift them towards something else. Shift them towards being grateful. Gratitude. And your heart may just follow. Shift towards giving thanks. Amen. Well, what does this look like? Well, it can look like when you see that friend's post sitting poolside in Hawaii after you have sat in during a, a week full of rain. Instead of thinking, poor me, when do I get to do that? I deserve that. And then jumping to a travel website as a means of escapism and self-soothing, could it be a time and place for you to simply say, I'm so grateful that they get to spend that time with their family? Or thinking of your own circumstances. Maybe you take some time to journal and actually make a list of things that you're grateful for. We have a friend that did this with their family even their young, young kids, and they said, okay, we're going to come every day to the breakfast table, and we're going to say, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for today? And she said, it just changed the climate in the day and in their house as they started into the day because their eyes were beginning to shift, not on all of the other things, but just shifting and focusing on the things that they could be grateful for. Think about what you post on social media, that is it is it grateful? Could it stir up gratitude in other people? Instead of complaining or being envious or jealous, try to think about how you might express gratitude and thanks to God for things that God has given to you. So the first practice, practice gratitude. Let there be thankfulness in your heart. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Practice number two, practice of generosity. And that's where uh, this book is going to be a help for you. And the question I want to ask is, do you have a God-sized plan for the resources that God has entrusted to you in 2022? See, part of the challenge with greed is that it preys, E-Y-S, on our lack of planning. And, and so we get caught up in things because we haven't made a plan and stuck to a plan. I saw a funny graph this week uh, in the bottom of a box of apples and it talked about how 54% of pear purchases in the grocery store were unplanned. And I wondered to myself, someone got paid to do a study on whether or not I planned to purchase a pear before I walked into this grocery store. 
But I also got thinking about how many unplanned purchases get me into trouble, little or big, whether it's a pair or something with more zeros attached to it. You know, do you have a plan that you actually are working out for the resources that God has entrusted you in this season? See, and the flip side of that is when you do have a plan and you plan to be generous, um, it, it starts to bleed into more than just your financial resources. It bleeds into other places of your life where you think about, how am I being generous with my time? How am I being generous with the things, the, the physical resources that God has entrusted to me, with my home, with my lawnmower, with, with my vehicle? And making a plan for you might be a challenging thing. And if so, we would love to help. I want you to reach out and ask for help in that area. We would love to walk with you. We've got lots of resources uh, that we can coach you in in this area uh, and with your heart. And imagine for a moment what it would feel like if you were able to be released from that nagging stress that comes from all of the crippling anxiety that bleeds into our lives with respect to finances. If you were free from that and you were able then to respond just with a generous heart to whatever it is that God put in front of you, an appeal for help, whatever it was, whether it came from halfway around the world in the Ukraine or whether it was someone, a neighbor on your street or someone in your family and you were able to say, yes, I can, I, we can say yes to that because we are free and able and ready to respond in that way. That fits our plan. I love the way that Isaiah, chapter 32, verse 8, puts this. Isaiah says, Generous people plan to do what is good and what's generous, and then they stand firm in that generosity. They actually create an architecture in their lives so that they can be generous. And then when things try to push that around and, and their values and priorities start to compete, they're like, no thanks, we're good here. We've made a plan. We're sticking to being generous in these areas because God has invited us into that. So think about, do you have a generosity plan? And what would it look like not to get pushed around or knocked off course when shifty spiritual eye syndrome sets in? And we'd love to help and walk with you in that. And so if you're watching online, um, then just email us, email office at jerichoridge.com. We'll mail a copy of this book to you so you can read it and get started in that. We'd love to open up a conversation uh, with you. And then if you need help in that area, we would love to resource you uh, in whatever way that we can. Jared and, and the worship and song team are coming. And as they do, I want to just read out again over us and remind us of our core value in this area. Uh, we phrase it this way. We talk about being people who commit to a generous lifestyle. And we say this, quote, we are radical stewards of God's gifts to us. And so we commit to living as faithful stewards, willing to cheerfully share what we have with others. We listen to and depend on God in every circumstance with a humble spirit of gratitude. Generosity touches all aspects of our lives, our friendships, our service, our time, our gifts, our abilities, our material resources. 
And so for me, one of the things that that means is not opening up any travel apps on my phone or otherwise this season of Lent. What does it look like for you? What does it look like to begin to think about getting unhooked from an area that you might find yourself tempted in? And as is our usual practice uh, here at Jericho, we'll have a prayer team available at the back, and today that's Ali Nicole and Kevin O'Coin and Miriam Falks are available. And I want to stress that these people are here to listen. And if you want to talk, they're here to talk and to pray with you. And they're not just here to talk and pray with you about what we've talked about here. So I don't want you to think like, oh, great, if I stand up and go for prayer, everybody think I have big financial problems in my life that need prayer ministry for. You might have come with a totally different thing on your heart and on your mind that we've not talked about yet in this time today. We've had lots of experiences of that this week at Jericho. You know, Larry Schmidt lost his mom uh, last Sunday. And so, you know, the Schmidt family's carrying loss and grief in their life. Same with Al Tison, who lost his mom this last week. And so you may have come with an area of heaviness and burden, and you may just say, I just need to pray with somebody about that. And so that's why uh, we have our team ready and available to help shoulder that burden. And our worship in song team is also ready and will lead us in songs that are prayers. And these prayers are just declaring our intention and desire of our hearts to place our trust and our hope and our confidence in God. They declare the truth of Scripture over our lives that God is sufficient and that the Spirit is at work and that God is our source and provider. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you're able and willing as we make this declaration together. This is our aim to be people of generosity, God helping us. Let's worship.